I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. My name is Hoy, and with me as always is the panther-like Jeff Goad. Sup. Sup. All right, Jeff, what are we reading this week? This week we are reading Robert E. Howard, L. Sprague de Camp, and Lynn Carter's Conan of Samaria. Nice. All right, and I see you have the same copy as I have. I do. All right. So uh, it's the Lancer 1970 printing. So it's, this, I guess, technically the second printing. It's got the trade dress with a big number two on the top. And the first printing does not have a big number two. Right. And it's got a lovely Frazetta battle scene on the cover on the mountainscape with yep. Conan fighting two frost giants. That's from Frost Giant's daughter. Mm-hmm. And how about the back cover copy there, Jeff? Conan in his prime, in his most savage epic adventures. Then the moon rose, a splash of blood. Ebony barred and the jungle awoke in horrific bedlam to greet it. Roars and howls and yells set the black warriors to trembling. But all this noise, Conan noted, came from further back in the jungle, as if the beasts, no less than men, shunned the black waters of Zakiba. The cold light struck icy fire from the jewels in Belit's clustered black locks as she stretched her lithe figure on the deck. We glide into the realm of horror and death, Belit said. Are you afraid? I was never afraid. I have looked into the naked fangs of death too often, Conan. Do you fear the gods? I would not tread on their shadow, answered the barbarian. Nice. <laughs> Moody, as they say. All yes, right. yes. Cool. So, uh, again, we said this is the Lancer 1970, and eventually it was reprinted by uh, Ace and basically stayed in print until the mid-90s. Um, but these days, if you want to find the Conan books, the best way to do that is in the Del Rey Ballantine trade paperbacks, which reprint the stories in uh, publication order. Um, this uh, copy has the DeCamp and Carter stories, the interstitial stories, which I guess we'll talk about more. Um, but before that, anything else, Jeff? Yes, we have a word. All right, and what is that word? Our Hygaxian word of the day is... Thew. Thew, as in mighty thews. Mighty thews. Yes. So where do we find this in the text? Well... Uh, every page. Every page. <laughs> exactly. Right next to Panther-like. A gentleman like me lacks the thews for such, cruled, for such crude physical efforts. And thews are muscular strength. There you go. Ooh, Conan right. and his mighty thews. Mighty thews, unlike any of us role players. <laughs> well, maybe there's, maybe there's one out there. He rolled a natural 18. And we've established that thews do not mean thighs. No, although we would think. <laughs> or calves. Shapely calves. Exactly. Firm no. buttocks. It is your muscular strength. There you go. Okay, so... Uh, I have a thews of 18. A thews of 18. Uh, I have thews of 4. I'm not going to say 3, <laughs> maybe 4. <laughs> yeah, you're not quite Mr. Burns. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent, good. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so uh, our second outing with Conan. What did you think? Um, I really enjoyed it. I um, I always have fun with Conan. I um, as with our first episode, I like. Let me rephrase that. I love the Robert E. Howard stories, and the non-Robert E. Howard stories are okay. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing in here was nothing in here is terrible. Um, I did feel 
that El Sprague de Camp and Lynn Carter didn't always capture what I think is, what I think of as the true spirit of Conan. And, you know, in this story, we've got a collection of quite a few stories here. And the, the, the true canon Conan stories that are featured in here are The Frost Giant's Daughter, Queen of the Black Coast, and The Veil of Lost Women. So we've got three kind of uh, Conan staples, and I think that the Queen of the Black Coast is one of the best Conan stories. It's really fabulous, fun to read, starts off with so much action, uh, it just like punches you in the gut and keeps running. Mm -hmm. um, the, the DeCamp and Carter stories that they wrote together, um, there is uh, The Curse of the Monolith and The Lair of the Ice Worm and the Castle of Terror were all written by DeCamp and Carter together. And then there were two kind of fragments that DeCamp completed, which are The Bloodstained God and Snout in the Dark, and Carter also helped out with completing Snout in the Dark. And the fragments that were completed by the other authors, or the titles that were entirely written by the other authors, they're fun. Um, they've got good gaming material, a lot of stuff that you could take and put into your game and have a lot of fun with. Uh, they don't feel like they truly understand Conan, in my opinion. You know, and it's really basic stuff. Like in um, in The Bloodstained God, for example, it says... Uh, what, what does it say here? It says... Though he feared no man or beast, the supernatural filled his barbarian mind with atavistic terrors. So we, we were establishing that that kind of classic Conan view of like, if I can hit it with a sword, it's fine. But if it's supernatural, I'm going to stay the heck away from that thing. And on page 74 in The Lair of the Ice Worm, it says, He feared nothing mortal, but was filled with dread and loathing by the uncanny supernatural beings and forces that lurked in the dark. So we've, we've got like, the, the, they've really done a nice job of kind of establishing the Conan that we know and uh, the Conan that we love. But then also, in a, in a different story on page 20, they seem to speak completely against that. And they say, Conan grunted, I fear neither God, man, nor devil, at, um, and least of all, the ghost of a long-dead king. So it, it, it's, sometimes it seems like their, their understanding of Conan is, uh, changes and isn't always, what's the word I'm looking for? Consistent? Thank or, you. Yeah. It isn't always consistent. So little things like that bugged me, but overall, I really enjoyed the book, had a lot of fun reading it. Hoy, what did you think? Um, I did quite a bit. I'm, I'm more or less on the same page with you. Um, one thing I did was that I did pick up this because I did notice that there were so many stories, otherwise I would only be talking about half the episode if I just read the Howard stories. So generally I read the Howard stories in the Delray Valentine books, mm -hmm. um, but I happened to come upon this one for a reasonable price, so I did that. Um, to address the points that you just made, um, Two things that jumped out at me, um, that actually Howard does contradict himself slightly with this, his fear of the supernatural, or Conan's fear of the supernatural, because okay. at the very end of um, The Veil of Lost Women, he fights off this being from outer space, essentially, okay. and his, um, it's a great sentence, um, and it's, it's a sort of very Lovecraftian um, being. He goes, Conan goes, a devil from the outer dark, he grunted. Oh, they're nothing uncommon. They lurketh... Th as thick as fleas outside the belt of light which surrounds this world. I've heard the wise men of Zamora talk of them. Some find their way to Earth, but when they do have, they do have to take on some earthly form and flesh of some sort. A man like myself with a sword is a match for any amount of fangs and talons, infernal or terrestrial. 
So he slightly contradicts himself, which is okay because he didn't write the Conan stories sort of as a sort of uh, in a chronological order. He was sort of just what was cool to him and then sort of afterwards put a chronology on it. Yeah, um, and I can see that, but I can also potentially argue with that and say that in that situation, he is realizing that the supernatural entity is flesh and bone, and I think that's what he's responding to because Conan, when he's faced with a flesh and blood opponent, will hack away at that thing no problem. Right. And if it's also, potentially something other than that, then he's like, whoa. Right. And he's also reassuring Livia, the 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 sort of escaped girl. Mm-hmm. That, you know, so in that sense, it's not totally contradictory. But it's not it's not that he's flees in terror. He's he's instinctually suspicious and afraid, but he doesn't automatically flee in terror as the sight of something you know you know odd and goofy. Right. Yeah, and as I want to do on this show, I'm, I, I can also argue with myself a bit more now, because now that you're bringing up that point, and I was bringing up the, the what I consider to be inconsistencies, both both the, the quote you've read and the quote that I read, where Conan's basically saying he's not afraid of these supernatural entities, are times where he's speaking, right. and the two times where it says he, he is uh, cautious around the supernatural and tries to avoid it, are times where the narrator speaking. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's also just showing us that maybe Conan is a bit more uh, of a braggart uh, than and is more willing to uh, say that he is afraid of the, uh, not afraid of the supernatural when in fact he does try to sure, sure. keep yeah. a wide breath. That's Conan's uh, public wide face. Birth? Yeah. Wide, wide, wide birth. Yeah. Not breath. Uh, two other things that jumped out at me in terms of you mentioning that um, maybe DeCamp and, and uh, Carter don't have a 100% handle on Conan. Uh, in the story, The Castle of Terror, um, it says here, uh, Conan prayed to his savage gods for the moon to emerge from the dense stormy clouds. He prayed for a hillock uh, on which he could make his last stand, essentially. So he's being uh, stalked by lions. And we know that Conan never prays. He makes, yeah. he swears, he makes interjections. He goes by Krom, but he never prays. Yes. Right? He never looks for an outside savior. So I think that's inconsistent. Um, I would and, agree with that completely. And incomplete understanding. And then another one that jumped out at me was um, in the same story. Is this? Uh, he's now in this uh, this uh, aforementioned castle of terror, which rises out of basically the African plain. It's this ancient, possibly built by the the serpent men. And uh, these party of Stygian slavers is also taking shelter for the night in this rainy. And while there's a huge thunderstorm outside this uh, castle. Conan is deciding whether or not he should take on these slavers. And, you know, he says, um, given half the chance, they would be delighted to capture him for their slave gang, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, he faced either a swift death or a bitter life of groaning drudgery in a Stygian slave pen. He was not sure which he preferred. That last sentence is, makes no sense. Of course he would rather have swift death than yes. a, a, slife, a life of slavery in a slave pen. Sometimes he gets captured and he escapes, but he would always prefer a swift death yeah. than to be a slave. Exactly. So that's not a complete understanding there. But, exactly. He, he, and he's not afraid to die in battle. Right. Because that's just what Crom intends. Right. He's pragmatic. He's not going to be suicidal or stupid. Of course. But, you know, if it's not going his way, it's not going his way. If he's truly vested in battle, then yeah. he has died... Yeah. Maybe honorably is not the right word, but he's 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 died the way he was meant to die and the way he wanted to die. Right, right. Um, anyway, so not a one hundred percent understanding. The stories are not terrible though, and, and as we say that they're 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 very gameable. Um, you know the creatures that um, the creatures and the villains that uh, DeCamp and Carter came up with are you know uh, vivid, 
you know, the various, uh, as we say, the NPCs, the other characters, they're okay. You know, they're not as sophisticated or complex as the ones that Howard created in his own stories. Like, none of the women that are in the, the camp and um, Carter stories are anywhere near as interesting as Billy in Queen of the, Queen of the Black Coast. Of course. Yeah. Livia in Veil of Lost Women is, is a weak character in the sense that she's not suited for the situation she's in, she's from civilization, but she has a viewpoint. Oh, absolutely. She, and yeah. she has depth and personality, yeah. and yeah. and I, I even feel like there's empathy right. for mm-hmm. her. Yeah, because as, as you said, she's uh, she's definitely a very weak character, but it's it's pretty clear to me that she's not weak because she's a woman. She's weak because she's from civilization. Right. She's, she's weak because everybody from civilization is weak, and they couldn't possibly thrive and survive in these kinds of uh, situations that they're in. And here you have this beautiful woman who has no power over anybody at all except for the fact that she's beautiful, and she tries to use that, and even that doesn't work. You know, she, she tries to say, like, you can, you can have my body if you'll save me, and he's like, well, I could have your body anyways. Right. You know, he, he, the, the, the sub, not, um, but also within that same, like, basically paragraph, they, Conan talks about how, like, he wouldn't actually, like, rape her or anything. Yeah. But if he could, if he wanted to. But he could, if he wanted to. Yeah. So yes, that's cute. Right. Um, um, but that's Conan could do anything if he wanted. He could murder you if he wanted to. Of he course. Could do it. He's, he's kind of a it's Ubermensch. Um, yeah. And, and so in one sense that he's um, you know honorable by his own standards. There's a lot of things he could do, but just because he can, it doesn't mean he sh- he will. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's not going to take any guff from anybody, as we know it's in the beginning of uh, Queen of the Black Coast when he strikes down the judge after being falsely accused. Yes. Um, I mean, that's probably the high point of this volume, but maybe we should save that and maybe talk about some of the other stories first, or yeah, sure. it's up to you. No, that's fine. We can totally do that. Um, so, uh, we're talking in general terms about the, the camp and uh, uh, Carter stories, and the first two stories are the camp and, and Carter stories, Curse of the Monolith and the Bloodstained God. Uh, anything jump out of you in either of those stories, or before we get to a Howard story? Sure. Uh, both of those... Um, one of the, so, actually, I'm going to say something else first. Um, this is an exciting episode because this is the first time where Hoy and I are actually caught up with our reading. This is the first time where we're recording an episode after um, immediately after meeting in real life for the book club and shortly after having finished the book. So it is pretty exciting that now it took us 17 episodes to get there, but now we're actually at the place where we are now kind of caught up with our reading, and that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and why did I bring that up? I forgot now. <laughs> but um, but um, the first two stories... Oh, because today, when we were discussing these books in our book club, one of the things that I had mentioned was that one of the things that I like about... that I, that I, that I both dislike and dislike about the, the Camp and Carter stories is that because I don't feel like they have a really strong sense of the Conan character, nor do I think they are as good at um, kind of coming up with interesting plots and environments and conflicts to keep the story super interesting, they tend to rely pretty heavily on set pieces. So here we have a cool monster, and here we have a cool trap, and here we have a cool, a cool uh, tomb or whatever. So in that sense, there's very like, interesting gameable material that you can take from these, and the ideas that they have are cool and interesting, but the stories they write just aren't very compelling. 
you know, the first story, um, what is the first story again? Curse of the Monolith. Curse of the Monolith, yeah. So the Curse of the Monolith story is basically Conan is walking along and um, is kind of tricked by this noble into right, going to this monolith. basically Chinese noble, right? Yeah. Chi. And the, the, basically the monolith is a big magnetic monolith and his plate mail sticks to it and there's a big evil slime on the top and the... The Chinese noble is playing his flute as um, the as Chinese nobles do. Yes, Chinese nobles do, and it's the slime is going to come down. It's going to eat Conan, but instead Conan escapes and kills the noble. Um, and then in the second one, uh, which is what the bloodstained god. The bloodstained god. Yeah. So that one, um, he ends up kind of while he's in while he's in town, he ends up saving this guy who's being threatened by this big gang, and it turns out they're all kind of going in the same general direction that he's trying to go to because he wants to find all this gold or whatever, and they find this, like, old ancient place that's got a big um, a big god with big red ruby eyes, and basically Conan fights it, and that's the end of the story. Um, so, I, I mean, there's, there's clearly more, more to it than that, but, like, it's, it's pretty basic stuff. Right. That one has the hilarious uh, falling door trap, though. Which is yes, awesome. <laughs> that one was great, and that's a great example of um, of there's really fun stuff you can take out of them. Just the stories themselves aren't really that compelling. But please tell us about the door trap. Right. It's um, so they're basically um, he's hanging out with a bunch of basically Afghan and, and Iranian sort of analogs, and they go up to this uh, this temple or palace, whatever it is, I forget now. And then one of the guys grabs onto the door handle. His cry changed to a scream as the door, a ton of bronze, swayed outward and fell, crashing, squashing the Iranistani like an insect. He was completely hidden by the giant metal slab, from beneath which oozed streams of crimson. It's almost like Daffy Duck. <laughs> <laughs> and then it slowly rises up again. It goes, the hinges are false. Ho, the door is rising up again. The hinges were, as Conan said, fakes. <laughs> the door was actually mounted on a pair of swivels on the lower corners that go up. So they could fall outward like a drawbridge. So it's it's literally a, like a, a original D and D trap, right? Or a Grimtooth trap? Absolutely. Yes. This is this is this is Grimtooth in uh, in the appendix end. Right. <laughs> and uh, as we were joking earlier, you can almost picture the guy slowly peeling off the back, like. Oh yeah, <laughs> as, as the gate is like rising up, just his little squished dead body, right. just like slowly peeling off of right. it. Very itchy and scratchy. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so as you say, great little set pieces. Um, but they don't, they, it, as you say, it's sort of, in each of the stories, it just sort of plops them into a situation and then the situation gets resolved, but it doesn't launch right into it the way that a Howard story does. Yeah. Um, so the third story is Frost Giant's Daughter, mm-hmm. which literally, uh, it's, it's poetic and it begins right with the clangor of sword and axe had died away. The shouter, shouting of, sl- of the slaughter was hushed. Silence lay on the red-stained snow. So, I mean, so moody, beautiful. It's the very end of the battle, right? That, yeah. And as you said earlier, when we were in the reading group, that would be the end of most stories, but that's the very beginning of this story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Howard does a really great job of starting the story kind of at the climax of a different story. You know, because at the very beginning of Frost Giant's Daughter... Um, and I don't mean literally at the end of another story, but like at the end of a story that was never told. Um, because I love how at the beginning of Frost Giant's Daughter, like it's just Conan and this man named Heimdall, and they're battling in this big giant field, and they're just surrounded by corpses, and they're the last two alive, and the last two is like still battling. That's a great way to start a story. Mm-hmm. You know, the start of the Queen of the Black Coast is Conan is uh, riding along on his horse, and he's uh, he's running away from the law, and he's uh, he's still in town, and he, his horse goes right onto the pier and leaps onto a ship 
And the ship captain's like, what are you doing on my boat? And he's like, get moving or I'll slice you in half. And he's like, all right, I guess we'll get moving. Yeah. And, and that's like how the story begins. And that's such an exciting and, and uh, gripping way to begin a story. Sure, and in Veil of Lost Women, we start with Livia already captured. Yes. Right, it's not like she's going along in her, her caravan and then gets captured. So it's boom, right in the situation. Yeah. And then, you know, Conan you know, finds his way into the situation somehow, right? Yeah, where oftentimes the DeCamp and Carter stories start with Conan just kind of walking right. by himself. Um, he's walking away from the location that the last story took place in because they want to tie the stories together somehow. And he walks until he finds something interesting. Right. And I think that there's two questions, right? One is, is this their, their, their impulse or, as you say, is it because they had tied themselves into the structure of wanting the stories to all be in chronological order and basically filling in all the gaps in his life. So, therefore, not just being able to start, like, in media res every single time. Right. You know, uh, again, I think Howard was not tied down by any of that. He sort of maybe had a mental chronology, and he addressed that in a private, I think, letter to one of his colleagues, you know, in the 30s, but he would never put that out in publication and said, this is definitive, and you can only read the Conan stories in this order. He was writing for the Pulps, and, you know, whatever sold... Yeah. That's why it got published. Sure. Um, actually, and it's interesting. I believe the Frostine's daughter, which is you know quite a well-known story now, was actually not printed in his lifetime. And it was I was reading earlier. It was not printed until uh, didn't see print until 1967 in uh, the magazine of horror. So literally just a couple of years before this this copy came out. Wow. Um, but now I think it's probably one of his most well-known stories, possibly because of this iconic Frostine cover. And that Frostine cover is is really wonderful. Uh, it is not one of my favorite Howard-written Conan stories, though. I, I really find the just this seriously rapiness of it to be uh, pretty uncomfortable. You know, and because for those of you who haven't read the story, basically the premise is that you know after this big battle between these two guys is over, um, Conan's just like lying in the snow. He's at death's door, and then suddenly see suddenly he sees a woman kind of like dancing and and and, and giggling and skipping through the snow and she's wearing almost nothing all she's actually wearing is some kind of like a uh, like a see-through something gossamer a veil. gossamer veil of yeah. some sort and he's so filled with sexual desire to possess her and possess her meaning rape her um that he rises up and starts chasing her and she's like running and giggling at first but then she starts like actually getting quite scared and is like yelling and here's one point where this is from page 59. You cannot escape me. With a cry of fright, she turned and ran fleetly. She did not laugh now, nor mock him over her white shoulder. She ran as if for her life. And it's like, that's pretty dark stuff, you know? And when your protagonist is, like, chasing a woman down for her life, that's that's pretty intense and, and, and not really something that I'm... I'm used to reading, used to reading, or used to seeing in a character who I'm traditionally rooting for. Um, I don't disagree, uh, but I will uh, put a frame around that, which is that uh, two things have happened, okay, or several things have happened. So first of all, Conan has just had a battle and had basically had his head almost caved in. So he's, we're not sure if this is a delusion of his, uh, a vision. And then we find that, at least in this vision, that uh, Atali, who is this woman, is the daughter of the frost giant Ymir, mm -hmm. and she may have basically enchanted him, yes, basically, to bring him to to her, to Emir as a, as a sacrifice. Yes. And then... Because her brothers were going to kill him. Right, and just at that point where you, the, the, the passage you just read, he has just fought the two frost giant, her brothers, who were 
supposed to take his smoking heart out and lay it on Ymir's uh, board. So, um, to the extent this is almost a primal hallucination, enchantment, um, it's effective. It's, as you say, it's, it's uncomfortable, yeah. um, but maybe it's not meant to be, right? Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm completely with you, and I will even argue your side of it further to say that, like, I even think in, she was intentionally trying to rouse him sexually so that he would come in that direction. That's exactly what she was doing. But the thing is, throughout the text, um, especially in, like, Bale of the Lost Women, you know, he talks about how he doesn't rape women, he doesn't take women by force. Uh, but in this story, you know, it, it seems like he's, um, he's so willing to go there. And I feel like if in the fiction it had, there had just simply been a passing line that just acknowledged that, like, this was not like Conan, he, he couldn't believe that he was behaving this way, he must have been bewitched or something, some indication that it wasn't just him just rising up because a beautiful woman was giggling at him to take her. You know, that, that, that simple sentence would have really changed the tone of this for me and made me realize that, like, he can't help himself in this situation. He truly has been bewitched by a supernatural power. Um, sure. Uh, maybe that's a little too... Um, literal? Literal or a qualifier. I mean, the, 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 I, I, my feeling with this story is that it's very primal, raw, instinctual... Right, Conan is often very much a, a, a much more cerebral character than people give him credit for. Mm -hmm. But in this situation, literally, he's fought almost to the death and has a head injury, essentially, yeah. and then possibly enchanted. This could be a hallucination. This could be enchantment. And so it's that rawness that you know that is the sort of the point of the story in my mm -hmm. mind. Um, that doesn't, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be comfortable. And I'm not even sure that that wasn't you know that we're supposed to be rooting for Conan in a story, so yeah. to speak. But yeah, so I, I think I've you know other people have pointed out that you know the word problematic you know could be applied to the story, and um, sure, there's I mean, no reason not to. But it, I think it's as an image again. I think because it's indelibly linked with this Frazetta painting, also yeah, that, that as pure imagery, this is maybe one of the strongest stories as an image. It's not necessarily the strongest story in terms of the plot or yeah. the characterization or all those other things that go along with it. Um, but I think it is also meant to be sort of borderline mythic, mm -hmm. right? And so it's not Conan as a human being so yeah. much as a type. Someone also, uh, I read somewhere, this sort of was meant to also reflect the story of um, Apollo chasing after, I guess, Diana. Or, okay. And so, um, anyway, so that's uh, this story. Anything else that Frost Giant's daughter, uh, you know, really points out to you? Or? No, that's really pretty, pretty much it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do, I, I did think it was interesting just how female-heavy this collection of stories was. Yeah, yeah. The story, uh, Queen of the Black Coast, Veil of, Veil of Lost Women, actually mm -hmm. all of them. I mean, even the DeCamp and Carter stories, a couple of them had uh, really hinged around women. The next yeah, one, Lair of the Ice Worm, and then the last one, Snout in the Dark as yeah, well. So, absolutely, I, yeah. There, there are lots and lots of women with, with uh, varying levels of um, complexity, and, um, and, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe, like, um, power, agency. Uh, ability, yeah. agency, yeah. yeah, um, uh, competence. Uh, but, like, Belit is, like, a great example, because Belit, uh, is a really interesting character, because if you want to say that Belit is a sexist depiction of a woman, it's totally fair, because she is 
sexually submissive to Conan. She is wondering, she's walking around basically completely undressed for the entire story, and the few times she is wearing something, it gets torn off of her. You know, she's very much a sex object. But then if you want to argue that she actually is a well-written kind of uh, feminist character, you can also argue that. Because in addition to everything that I've just said, she is also this really powerful figure who is uh, commanding a whole troop of pirates who completely have, she completely has them under her control. Right. She's literally the queen of the, back, the Black Coast. Thing. Absolutely. Right. And even when Conan joins her and, um, and the two of them pair up, she, he's working for her. She issues the commands and he does them. So although she's sexually submissive to him, he is uh, submissive to her in the sense of like he listens to her orders and follows her orders. And together they become like this, this couple who rule the pirates. Mm -hmm. um, so she's really in a lot of ways a really badass character too. Uh, so it, it's interesting. It, it's from a, from, a, from a contemporary perspective, uh, it's, it can be confusing. Right. You know? Well, um, I think uh, he had a handle, or he had a handle on what Belit's knowledge of what her strengths were, right? Yeah. That she, how could she rule over 80, 90 pirates on the ship? Not by muscle, that's what she had Conan for eventually, right? Yeah. So it had to be by her cleverness, her force of personality. Her, yeah. um, that's actually interesting because she's incredibly seductive, but it's not implied that she's using her sexual wiles with her crew. That's not why they're following her. Absolutely. Right? It's her sheer charisma, her, mm -hmm. her bloodthirstiness, her, her ability to point them towards treasure. Yes. Um, She's not just sleeping with everybody. Right. Um, and in her... In, and she's uh, sub sexually submissive to Conan, but only because she recognized him as worthy of being in her bed. Yeah. You know, a, you know, a lion to her lioness, so yeah. to speak. Um so I think she names him Amra, right? The Amra the Lion is when he, he gets the nickname from her at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, she's another instance of one of these characters who could normally be the protagonist, but if you look at her actions, she's, you know, she's actually possibly the villain. She's evil, right? She kills the, the, the oh, merchant no crew. Uh, oh, and know. Conan is, is uh, also kind of hilarious in this, and maybe this is where it shows you what a hypocrite I am, yeah. because, you know, I have a problem with the raid stuff, but I don't have a problem necessarily with, with this side of Conan. But, you know, Conan hops onto this, this, this merchant ship and basically forces these merchants to let him ride with him. And Conan becomes a part of their crew, becomes friendly with them, ends up liking all of them. But then when he encounters Belit and the pirates, um, they all just completely slaughter this merchant crew. And Conan doesn't seem to have any kind of, uh, like, uh, sympathy or sadness or mourning over these people who, who he's been teamed up with and has died, nor does he want revenge. He's just like, oh, all right, okay, I'll join you guys now. Right. Well, he does He does fight and kill quite a number of the pirates, but once he realizes that he's no longer at the winning hand, yeah, yeah he's very pragmatic. Um, but that's always been true of Conan, I think, if you look at the stories, at least the Howard ones, that, yeah. that he's quite pragmatic. He's not um, cowardly. He doesn't flip allegiances you know, on a whim, mm -hmm. but once he's put into a situation that's no win, but that's survivable if he changes tack, yeah. then he will do so, yeah. right? And so that's that's what we don't give Conan credit for a lot of times. Um, and we were talking earlier in the in the, um, the actual In Real Life book club, Conan to me in many ways resembles a hard-boiled pulp detective mm -hmm. in some senses. He's moving through sort of, again, a fallen, corrupt world, uh, but he's very practical and he's sort of true to himself. Right, and it's not necessarily completely changing the world, at least in these early stories. You know, later on we know he becomes king of Aquilonia. So 
he's an essential survivor, and he will, you know, change sides if he's necessary. But he won't degrade himself yeah. to be a survivor. Yeah. Right. So that's the big difference. You know, he will, he will change sides if it's practical. He will do, you know, he may even betray an ally that he knows is going to betray him. Yeah. But he won't do anything that will degrade himself. Mm-hmm. And he's not commonly the kind of person who will degrade his opposition. Yeah. Right. He will slay them, but he will allow them the dignity of being a worthy foe. Right. So um, he might normally say, oh, this person is civilized, they're so weak and stuff like that. But if sure. he meets a, a worthy foe, even if they're civilized, he will acknowledge that and recognize that. So, yeah. Um, and, and speaking of um, problematic content, you know, Robert E. Howard is often also accused of being racist in his writing. You know, in this story, um, well, there is one point, I forget which story it's in, it's on page 45, where some tribesmen are described as being gorilla-like, which is clearly a racist description of black tribesmen. That's in the Bloodstained God. Right, so um, that's not, yeah, that's a fragment, right? Yeah, and since that one's a, a completed fragment, I don't know if that was Howard who wrote that or if that was DeCamp who right. wrote that. Well, Veil um, of Lost Women clearly has very many racist elements. That's true, too. Um, but, again, I don't think it's... Um, they're, they're, like, tropes of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't like to say, use that, oh, there's a, you know, he was of his time, blah, blah, sure. blah. But I don't think these are deeply held feelings or integral the way that... Um, you know, we talked that how you know that Lovecrafts has this you know absolutely erotic. If you want issues. to go with the you know you have to you have to go into historical context and and see how they work for the time. And like you know certainly with with Howard, I think you can do that. With Howard, I think you can say like you know yeah, it was a different era, whatever. With Lovecraft, like he was bad for his era. Like right. his, he he was outlandishly racist even for racists of the nineteen twenties. Right and. and Howard, many there's many instances where you would be uncomfortable with racial depictions, but Howard generally will write the characters with some level of complexity, and it's not across the board that you know uh, black people are whatever whatever your negative stereotype that you might apply they're lazy or unintelligent um, because we've seen this in many of his other stories like the Solomon Kane stories with the witch doctor that befriends Solomon Kane is is very intelligent and points to a a world that Solomon Kane is not aware of. Um, in the instances of, um, in some of the horror stories, you know, are about, you know, the r- racial bigotry coming home to roost. Yeah. With, you know, so I think he's he's capable of a level of complexity and, and agency and all those other things that uh, would point to that here's a man who will sometimes use a trope because it fits the story, mm-hmm. but... He is capable of much more thought about that. It's not a reflexive, like, oh, this group is just this thing, yeah. right? Whereas, um, you know, Lovecraft almost didn't want to be human, so anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know. and, and there definitely is some of that, I agree with you, especially having read some of his horror stories. Um, that definitely was present there. With both Queen of the, Queen of the Black Coast and Veil of the Lost Women, uh, in Queen of the Black Coast, Belit is a white woman who is uh, in charge of a tribe of black pirates, and in The Veil of Lost Women, Conan has since become the king of a tribe of black uh, tribesmen. And in both of these situations, the black characters, of which are, there are many and they're numerous, um, are flat two-dimensional characters who really have nothing interesting to do or say. And they are kind of blindly following these like great white leaders. And to me, there's definitely um, kind of a... Uh, subtle kind of imperialist racism to that 
where it's like white man has the right to lead these uh, these poor black savages, and these poor black savages aren't even real people. I think there's 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 some level of that there that I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, but also that doesn't take away from my experience of like like it's a fantastic story. Right, I. Definitely saw more of that in Veil of Lost Women, although part of that is because it's through Livia, a good portion of the story, it's through Livia's point of view, and yeah. she's this soft white woman who's been, ca- you know, captured by multiple different tribes and has finally found herself. And is terrified of them. Terrified. And so it's filtered through her sort of fear and hysteria, although Conan himself says a couple things in the story which ultimately are quite racist, at least, you know. But I think Conan probably pretty much holds everybody who's not him in sort of a sort of level of they're lower, slightly lower beings, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's not like he thinks like Sumerians are better than everybody. He's oh, no. there, right? Or, you know... There's a reason he left Sumeria, right. because he was better than them. Right. Um, so uh, things that you mentioned to me did not leap out to me as much in Queen of the Black Coast. I didn't feel like it was so much that Belit was ruling over these people because she was white. It's because she was just that charismatic and that sort of forceful personality, right? Yeah. Had it been written as a black woman, an Asian woman, or whatever, but still with the same characteristics, she still would have been the leader of that crew. Yeah. Right. I guess I, mean, I just can't imagine Howard writing a story where a black woman was... running over a bunch of... Yeah, well, that would have been a step too far for sure. Howard's era, and yeah. probably well into much more recently than we even think. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, sure, sure, yeah. So. It's, it's hard to imagine right now a story where a black woman is, is, is in charge of a group of white men. Right. Although, I guess it's interesting, again, this is a, a DeCamp story and Carter's story, although it's from a Howard Fragment, the la- very last story, The Snout in the Dark, there's the, the queen who is um, basically Egyptian, right? So they have the Egyptian, the Stygians who have come down and they're ruling over uh, a black kingdom to the south of Stygia, which would have been basically Nubia in, in, our, in our universe, in our history. Um, she's quite forceful, but in the story it's implied that she's too forceful. She doesn't really know how to wield power, so yes. she only does things through violence and inflicting violence rather than using her her wiles, which Belief does, yeah. right? You know, she's a, she's an intelligent woman, but she's you know blinded by her sense of racial superiority. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, because she, the Stygians believe themselves superior to these other you know the, the blacks of of Kush, um, and because of her position. So there's some complexity there. And again, I don't I haven't read the fragment that I came from or the outline that came from, so I don't yeah. know if that's Howard bringing that or if that's Carter into camp. But as you say, there was, uh, you know, more complexity with the female characters than we might have expected at first glance. And again, I think that this it's easy to stereotype um, Conan in our minds. And I think a great part of that stereotype is from the, at least the depiction of Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> doing that. Conan. You know, Conan, what's his, what's his best in life, you know. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to a certain extent where you only see the snapshot of, like, the Frazetta cover painting and not everything that leads up to that scene in the Frazetta mm-hmm. cover painting. So you see the battle but you don't see what led up to the battle, yeah. or you see the aftermath of the battle. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so what else? Uh, Queen of the Black Coast is probably one of the all-time high points, I guess, in by many people's standards, and probably by your standards, Jeff, of, mm-hmm. of the Conan canon. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, Veil of Lost Women I didn't love, but there's stuff I like in it. Um, Frost Giant's Daughter, I think it's safe to say I liked more than you, mm-hmm. you did. Um 
But There's a lot I like about Frost Giant's Daughter. Yeah. Um, but I also feel like, you know, maybe it's time to kind of start chatting about the gaming stuff. Because sure. I feel like if we just keep talking about the short stories, that'll end up becoming the whole episode. Sure. Um, and while that's also fascinating, um, I also think there's a lot of really exciting, fun stuff to talk about from the gaming perspective. Um, so kind of specifically, there is one thing that really leapt out at me. And in one of the stories that we haven't really spoken about yet is um, a story that's called The Lair of the Ice Worm, mm -hmm. which is one that's not written by Howard. It's completely a decamp and Carter pastiche. Um, but in it, there is a monster called the Remora. R-E-M-O-R-A. And what happens is Conan is coming back from the, uh, from the uh, Frost Giant's Daughter story, mm -hmm. and he's walking through this frozen waste, and he ends up encountering this woman who needs some help, and he helps her or whatever. But he ends up encountering this, this basically this giant frost worm, and it's very clearly the Remoraz from the first edition Advanced Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual, uh, which I think is R-E-M-O-R-H. AZ, yeah. um, except Hoy, you pointed out one um, very, very specific distinction. Though. Right. They basically flip. It's the inverse. Here it creates frost around it. It's a hypnotic ice worm that he, you know, hypnotizes people and then just sort of swallows them alive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then Conan eventually kills it by heating up his helmet and sword and yeah. throwing it down his gullet and it blows up, you know, steam explosion. Um, <laughs> exactly. But the remor has is... The Holger Carl Carlson The Holger style. Carlson trick. Holger Carlson 101. Um, <laughs> the remor has in the monster manual is sort of the inverse. It survives because it's basically a furnace. Right, and it has these basically radiating fins that like are super hot that radiate out the the internal heat in its body, so that it doesn't overheat and melt. And so, I, it's clear that they read and saw. It, it's an ice worm, also. It's clear that they read and saw this creature, but they said, "Okay, what's our flip? What's yeah. our twist on it? Let's make it this thing." Sure. And the remore has actually shows up in um, the frost giant, the frost giant Jarl uh, module, the second oh. G two module. Okay. So, yeah. Um, nice. It has a nice Dave Trampier illustration, as I recall, from the from, you know, from the uh, Monster Manual as well. So that's very cool. Yeah. and that to me shows me that specifically these collections, as they are now, as both the combination of the DeCamp Carter stories and the Howard stories, really do belong. Um, let me let me rephrase that. Um, that when you're reading the Conan Appendix N stuff, I think it is pretty important to make sure you are reading it with the Elspring to Camp and Lynn Carter contributions as well. If you're interested, if your interest is in understanding what inspired the creation of Dungeons and Dragons, sure. because that story, Howard had nothing to do with that story, right. and that monster is very clearly in the Monster Manual. Right. And also in the um, OD&D booklets, um, what was the one about the gods called? Was it just called uh, de Deities and Demigods? Uh, the the ODD wasn't Daisy's, it was, uh, not, is it Eldritch Wizardry? I think it's the third one. Right. And then Gods, Demigods, and Heroes. Thank you, yes. Yeah. In Gods, Demigods, and Heroes, there is a section of the, like, the Conan mythology. Yeah. yeah. And in it, they have, like, the thing for, like, the, the Wand of Nergal, and that was from the first of the Conan collection, from the first Conan collection, just called Conan, mm -hmm. and that was one written by DeCamp. Uh, so, very clearly, like, the stuff that is in the non-Howard Conan stuff was very influential right. on Dungeons and & Dragons. And frankly, at that point, 
uh, I think there was a few small press editions, but that that was the only way to get your Conan at that point was yes. in this way was in the Ace and Lance paperbacks. So with the DeCamp and Carter contributions in there, and I don't think anyone was being a particular purist at that point of view and saying, okay, I'm only going to read the Howard stories. Like you know, if you yeah. read the Howard stories, you're like, oh, I need more, so I'm going to read the DeCamp and you know Carter stories as well. Or because of the way they're interleaved, certainly when I read the first Conan book. I think that was an ace version, and when I was, you know, in around 1980 or so, I wasn't aware of what was Howard and what was, uh, you know, uh, Carter and DeCamp. Now, reading it, it's very clear. I mean, the prose, Carter's, uh, Carter and DeCamp's prose is just not as polished as, as but Howard's. But if you're not familiar with it, it right. makes sense that you wouldn't really know the difference. And also, when we encounter each new chapter and we've got a new story, it doesn't say... Veil of the Lost Women, written by Robert E. Howard. The only place it really delineates that is in the very beginning of the book. Right, in the table so, of contents. And that's it. Yeah, in the table of contents. So you really have to, as you're reading it, go back to the table of contents to even know who you're reading, which I'm guessing they probably did on purpose because I think they actually... Re- I, I, I think their goal was to have it be as seamless as possible. And, you know, it's up to you to judge the level of that success. I would say maybe like a C plus in terms of their... their uh, ability to make a smooth smooth transition between story and story. Well, it's funny. They actually even say that themselves in yeah. the introduction on page 11. It says, yeah. the reader must judge how successful our posthumous collaboration with Howard had been. Right. Yes, we uh, must. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> judge we will. Uh, uh, again, uh, you know, we always have to give them credit because I don't know to what extent the Conan stories would have been available had Carter and DeCamp not been pushing these and editing them mm-hmm. and, and, you know, getting them answered to... Oh, yeah, print. we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. You know, I, I and that, yeah, exactly. It's not to say that the Conan stories wouldn't have been available at some point anyways. I'm sure they would have been. But I think they were really instrumental in pushing Conan into the into the, the level of fame that he is now. I, mm-hmm. I, I think without them, we probably wouldn't have had the 80s Conan movies. Right. Or, right. Conan probably would have come by later. Right. Those and, 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 and let's give Frank Frazetta the credit because the imagery is so powerful that even if we didn't have any of the stories, there would still be Van Art and Black Velvet paintings of yeah. <laughs> Frazetta stuff throughout the 70s, right? That's true, so, too. Um, you know, and actually it's, it's interesting because um, if you look at the various history of the Ace and Lancer editions, there was also another artist, John Duilo, whose stuff looks so stiff and that they, they people recognize that and later on they replaced them with these Boris Vallejo sort of Frazetta-like covers yeah. later on. Yeah, and speaking of the, the camp in uh, the Carter stories, like, having their own merit, you know, like I was saying before, there's a lot of, like, very good gameable stuff in here, and sometimes it's not always just a prop or a set piece. You know, here's one sentence that I think is fantastic from, um, which one is this? This one is The Curse of the Monolith. Uh, they say, The taunting tune of Fang's flute sang maddeningly in his ears while the ungodly stench of the slime thing filled his nostrils. And the reason why I really like that sentence is you're telling us about what's going on by what Conan is hearing and what Conan is smelling. And I think that both in fiction and in our gaming as game masters, it's really important for us to engage in the senses. You know, how does, what does the texture of that object feel like as they're, as they're, as they're groping blindly in the darkness? You know, what is the smell that's coming down from that dank hallway ahead of them? You know, and that kind of stuff really brings the character into the, the, the location that you're trying to describe. Right. I think that's important. I think also we uh, often at the table sort of hand wave, um, you know, 
if you have a non-human character, they have infravision, yeah. or, you know, we hand wave, like, lighting conditions and describing mm-hmm. that kind of sense, as you say, the sense of the smells, the floor slippery, yeah. and kind of stuff like that. Um, and I think even if we don't have a mechanical effect, we should describe it just to set the mood. It's like, oh, it's really dim in there, you know? Yeah. Um, out of the shadows, you hear this chittering sound, right? And yeah, actually, there's a blog post that I've seen going around kind of Google+, and I, I apologize to whoever wrote it. I don't remember the name of it, nor who wrote it, but it's, it, it, it was... It was it was called something like how to not describe a dungeon. Mm-hmm. And it was this whole blog post about how you don't just say, oh, well, the room is 35 feet by 15 feet. There's a door on the west wall, a door on the north wall, um, and there's a pit in the center of the room. Right. You know, you, th- that is not evocative. Right. You know, like, yes, it certainly, it's, it's, it's clear and descriptive if you're just trying to map it, but that doesn't, you don't get any mood there. You don't get any atmosphere there. There's no dread. There's no sense of excitement. There's no, oh, it, Am I getting closer to treasure? Like, oh, is this room getting hotter and hotter as I get to the center of this, like, you know, dungeon built into a volcano? Like, what, whatever it is that's going on, there's right. there's no extra oomph there. Right. This is a sidebar, but I was reading the other day, again, also I don't remember which blog entry it is, but I think they talked to either Tim Cask or one of the other early D&Ders, and they said that the D&D infravision was not meant to be perfect night vision. Originally, it was meant to be more like in The Predator, where you saw, like, these sort of blobs of red or something like that and so oh you see this things coming at you but you're not sure what they are until they um so i like playing that where you say oh it's torchlight and you can only see at the edge of the torchlight you see some like reflective eyes or something like that coming at you um and is that like a pack of like demonic mice or are they gems right um it's maybe a little harder again especially if we're in a, a um i always bring this back up if we're playing in sort of a limited convention slot uh, you know, four-hour time slot, open table situation to remember to do that. Whereas if you're playing a campaign game with people that you know a lot, maybe it's easier to bring that back into play. You know, if you're playing in a, a gaming store with 10 other tables, it's hard to say, oh, it's really dark, it's ominous. It's hard to, like, also modulate your voice as the GM to, like, bring it down softly to make some people sort of lean in. Yeah. Right? Um, I think you can still do it, though, because I think it's... I think if you're, if you're taking... Especially taking somebody through a dungeon... When you go into room 14A, right. just look at the map and see what the what the what the adjacent rooms are. Yeah. And if you've done some enough prep, like you will have it like, oh, that's the room. That right there is the room that's got the the guard who's 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 uh, guarding the prisoners. That room over there has I don't know the stables with the whatever. So as you enter this room, you can say that you hear like the arguing of some 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 humanoids in the next room over. And um, from the west, you kind of there's 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 a smell of manure coming mm-hmm. from coming from that doorway. You know, just kind of very basic stuff. You, like that wasn't even super descriptive, but it's still enough to kind of give you a sense of like, oh, there's something different. This this door means something different than that. Sure. Um, I was again I apologize for whichever blog post I read this on, but it's finding that balance of description where you don't want to overload the front. Like you don't want to be like. Oh, and there's this you know tapestry hanging over there, and this super long description. And by the way, there's an orc with an axe standing right in the middle of the table. So you might want to start leave with the orc, and then let yes. the players say, "Oh, what's this room like? Like, yeah. what can we use in this room? Is mm-hmm. it dark? You know what?" And then you start filling that in. So it really depends on yeah. the situation. If you're coming into a room with no obvious threat, then you can really build mood more like this. And then, if the threat is posited as being as soon as you come into the room in your module or the way that you've written your own scenario. Then you lead with the threat, and then start filling in the pieces around the edge as the players ask, like so they can sort of use their environment effectively. And I think that in early sort of 
first edition ODD OSR style play if you want. People were more likely to make use of their environment as opposed to just like, oh, I've got the stats for this, I will go head to head with this blah 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 into yeah. more modern iterations of the of the game. So mm-hmm. um, but finding that balance and that's always something that I'm striving to do. So I think the thing to do, especially with pre written modules, is to make sure that you read all the flavor text first, but then re edit it in your head mm-hmm. so that you know how you're gonna present it. Right, you know, never read the box text as written. That's for you as a GM, so that you can absorb it. But that's not for you to spit back at the players in the exact same way. I think. Oh, I'm actually okay with reading box text. I guess it depends on you know how much of it it is and, sure. and how well it's written. But, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Um, okay. What else? Anything else that is uh, super gameable that jumps out at you in, in terms of um, this book or this collection? Yeah. Uh, so, you one thing I like that I can actually build on that you're talking about is you had mentioned that. Um, that in kind of old school OSR style gaming, people are more likely to use their environment. And I think in terms of like Dungeon Crawl Classics, the the, the warrior has the mighty deed. So mm-hmm. really with any attack, he can just do this like extra cool badass thing that just, if he rolls right, it happens. Right. And I think that that's especially encouraged when you do have players who are looking to interact with their environment more. And in Conan of Samaria, in the story The Bloodstained God, there's that moment where the way Conan deals with this giant god, the bloodstained god, with his big like ruby eyes or whatever, is he basically just runs up and pushes it into a giant uh, chasm. Yeah. And like he doesn't just like hack at it with his with his battle axe until it finally like runs out of hit points. He just does a single mighty deed. Right. And like I also recognize that if you're playing Pathfinder or 3.5. Like maybe he's gonna he can do like a grappling maneuver that is a uh, pushback, and you might have a feat that would increase your ability to do pushback. I, I know that that kind of granularity definitely exists in those kinds of styles and in, in those kinds of games. But I just think it's kind of more fun when it's just like you know, I'm I'm a I'm a mighty warrior, and if I want to push a guy into a chasm, that's mm. something I can do. Right. If a chasm is there, <laughs> and I roll my attack correctly, then fine. You are now plummeting down that right. chasm. I think DCC does do that a good job of splitting the difference between something that's very explicit mm-hmm. and it being open-ended enough to allow you to just say, oh, anything I can imagine can happen in here, within the limits and the plausibility of that world. Yeah. Right? And certainly also, the tendency just to use the mighty deed, the deed die for attacks, but it could be used for something else like leaping over a chasm or you know swinging by a chandelier or something cool like that, too. So, um, to allow for coolness. Uh, and DCC is good in that regard because it has a lot of other mechanics that allow you that. You know, you could use luck, luck rules to also allow for something cool to happen. Right? Yes. Um, so, and I, I think, um, you know, again, finding that um, enough sort of mechanical hooks so that if you're new to the game or you're not sure what you can do, um, that that helps you. But then also not so mechanical that it doesn't sort of lock down your imagination. Right, it's, it's the sweet spot. And, you know, you'll find it, for each person, it'll be different. But, you know, I think for both of us, we'll both agree that DCC happens to make that quite effectively, right? Because it's a little harder in old-school Dungeons & Dragons to imagine borderline superhuman feats the way that Conan achieves, right? It's more like, okay, we're, we're, we're heroic, but we're more like Indiana Jones yeah. than Conan, mm-hmm. right, in that sense. Whereas DCC allows us to do it this way, and then some of the more modern games are almost super heroic, and that sort of takes away some of that fun, of that, that sense of peril. I agree. So, um, 
anything else that really leaps out at you? Before um, we... I think there's a lot more that we could talk about, but right. I, I think we're pretty much right. kind of out of time. Yeah. Um, well, we've got a lot more Conan books and stories to get to, so I'm sure that anything we didn't think of today will... will yes, we'll have plenty of time to talk about Crom and flying apes and black yeah. lotus leaves and in the future. And there's always snakes. There's always, always, snakes. always why, giant snakes. Why did you have to be snakes? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, what's up next, Jeff? We've got a really cool pair of episodes coming up. Episode 18 is going to be Fritz Leiber's Swords Against Death, which is the second in the Linkmar books. And uh, the book after that will be Jack Vance's Eyes of the Overworld, which is the second in the Dying Earth series. So very cool, fun books that I'm excited to discuss with you. Terrific. So we'll be back soon. In the meantime, if you want to uh, find out more about the show and look at the show notes, you can go to our website, Appendix and Book Club. And if you want to email us, you can email us at appendixandbookclub at gmail.com. And Jeff, how about the uh, book club and gaming group? Yeah, if you would like to attend one of the in-person uh, book clubs, please check out meetup.com slash dccnyc. Uh, if you get a chance, go to iTunes, leave us a review and a rating. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at appendix underscore n. I did that correctly this time. I'm very right. proud of myself. Uh, so there are many ways in which you can interact with us in real life or virtually. All right. Very good. So we'll see you in the stacks, people. All right. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>